This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, I'm going to begin this morning by asking you guys a question, a series of questions. First one, um, what do you believe happens after we die? What do you believe about the afterlife, about our existence for the rest of eternity? The second question, where does that belief come from? What is it based on? What is it founded on? And then third, how does your belief impact the way you live? What are the, the ramifications or the implications of that belief? Why does that belief matter or does it matter? These are essentially questions about eschatology, uh, which is not as scary of a word as, as it sounds. It's just the, the study of, of, of how things end, of the, the telos of the story, how this grand story of God redeeming and renewing his once very good creation ends. Questions that, that Paul begins to answer in his letter to the church in Corinth here in this morning's passage as we dig into 1 Corinthians 15 in our series on the resurrection, Alive in Christ. And what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see Paul address some misunderstandings that some in the church had about the reality of the resurrection, showing both ramifications if the resurrection is not true and implications if it is, and so that I don't leave you in tension the whole morning, a little hint, it's true, it's real, it's okay. Could probably just stop right there and we're good, aren't we? But he begins here by revealing uh, this misunderstanding that some of the church had about the resurrection. And he does this by asking him a question. Look down here with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Paul asks, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, they believed and they accepted Jesus' resurrection, that he was resurrected back to life, but not themselves. Because, after all, dead people don't come back to life, do they? Like, we don't see that every day. That's not something we see. It's not something that happens. It's not something they thought that intelligent, educated people believed in. That was just a myth. That was just a fable. And that they were okay with Jesus being resurrected because he's different. Right? He, he's, he's the son of, son of God. He, he did all kinds of things we've never done. He, he, he's like Hercules. He's like Achilles. He's like all of the other Greco-Roman demigods that they believed in. But to understand why they believed what they believed, we need to better understand the world in which they lived. Corinth uh, was a city at a cultural crossroads, a very modern Greek city in the first century, exposed to a variety of, of different beliefs as people would pass in and through the city, including various beliefs on the afterlife and our existence after death. And there were essentially three types of views on the afterlife, three views that existed in the ancient world. And the first was that there was no existence, that we, we, we just simply ceased to exist after we die. At least as an individual consciousness, some believing that we're just simply absorbed back into the universe from which we came. The first is no existence. The second is a physical embodied existence of some kind. Some uh, believing in a, in a form of reincarnation, 
Uh, we're, we're brought back as something or someone else after we die. Or in some form of, of resurrection of the dead, as we see in many Jewish writings from this time, of how the, the earth had received the dead and at some point will, will give them back. But then the third was a spiritual disembodied existence. Uh, a dualist, Gnostic belief that had prevailed throughout much of the Greco-Roman world that, uh, that believed that the, the physical realm was, was, was only temporary and it was inherently evil. But, but that the spiritual realm, that that was eternal and that was good. And that our souls are imprisoned in our physical bodies. And that after death, they're, they're liberated. They're, they're set free to go where they were always meant to be. And what they were doing is they were taking this, this pagan view of a spiritual disembodied existence in the afterlife. That, that they grew up believing. And they were overlaying it on top of what Paul had taught them about Jesus and the resurrection in the gospel, and they were, they were blending the two together. And what's interesting is how these same three views continue to exist today, and they continue to exist in the church in various forms. They exist with some believing that there is no conscious existence after death, at least for some. Uh, some believing in an embodied existence after death in some form of physical resurrection, and many believing in a, in a disembodied spiritual existence. That, that this life and this world, it's only temporary. And that after we die, our souls are, are taken home to heaven to be with Jesus for all of eternity. And our, our physical body is, is left behind. And that, that, that's the goal, right? The goal is to, to get out of here, to leave here, to escape, and to get to heaven and to take as many others with us as we can. And while that may be the story that we grew up hearing and even believing, that's not the story Scripture tells. Because Scripture tells of a, of a resurrection story. Not a, not a story of, of retreat, but a story of victory. Not a story of God destroying his creation, but of resurrecting and renewing and restoring this once very good creation making everything right, putting everything back the way it was in the very good beginning, including our own physical bodies, with our own resurrection of the dead one day. But Paul doesn't go there, not yet. Now, what Paul does, I love this. He's like, okay, this is what you believe. Let's play it out then. Let's, let's see where this takes us. He does a little, a little thought experiment with them, showing how... Well, if, if this is true, as you say, then that must also be true. It's this kind of left brain logic that the uh, recovering engineer in me absolutely loves. So here we go. We're going to see five ramifications here of believing that there is no resurrection of the dead. And, and it's kind of like a, there's a domino effect to it. You ever set up a, like a, a domino train, a line, of, a line of dominoes? You ever watch that show Domino Masters? These guys are actual masters of domino trains until somebody like accidentally knocks it over and they lose like three hours worth of work. It's terrible. You cry with them. But, but the idea is that you flick over that first domino and it knocks over the next one, which knocks over the next one and the next one and the next one until they've all fallen down and everything falls apart. And that's what Paul does here. 
So he says the first ramification, the first domino to fall, if the resurrection is not true, as some of you say, is, is Jesus' own resurrection. Right? He says in verse 13, he says, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. Right? Without the resurrection, Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead. He's, he's still dead. Because the, the eternal divine son of God, he added the fullness of humanity to his divinity. He didn't just come and appear human. He was human. He, he, he was born as a baby, wasn't he? That's what we celebrate at Christmas. He, he learned to walk at some point. His voice cracked and changed as he hit puberty. When's the last time you thought of Jesus going through puberty? Fully human. He ate food, he had friends, he felt emotions, he laughed, he cried, and he suffered, and he died. And without the resurrection, Jesus is still dead. And that leads to the second ramification, the next domino to fall, is that without the resurrection, the gospel is a lie. Right? The gospel is a lie. Look at what he says in verse 14 and 15. This one gets personal. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. That's a pretty big whoopsie, isn't it? See, the Jewish people, they, um, they were anxiously awaiting the arrival of this promised Messiah that we see throughout the Old Testament scriptures the one who they thought would would drive out the Romans and usher in God's kingdom, ushering in peace and and reestablishing the nation of Israel to power once again, just as it was under David and Solomon. And there were many, many self-proclaimed messiahs that came, making big promises. But every single one of them died. And the hopes of the people died with their failed messiah. And every time one died, they started looking for another. It's not much different than us every year in November where we look to a politician to save us and restore us. And they come along making really big promises, don't they? That they're simply unable to fulfill. And another self-proclaimed Messiah came along, and this guy's name, it was Jesus. And he came along promising the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. He even promised that if they were to destroy the temple, that he would raise it up again on the third day. The temple was big. One dude ain't doing that in three days. But the people were buying into it for a while. And when Jesus failed to fulfill the people's expectations of Messiah, they eventually had him arrested for blasphemy and executed for treason. And whatever hope the people had in Jesus as Messiah, it died with him as it did with every other failed Messiah. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he writes about how Jesus, he's he's one of three things. He's either a liar and that he's not the Messiah he claimed to be. He's a lunatic in that he he actually believed he was, but whoops, wasn't because he died. Or the third option, that he was Lord, that he truly was the Messiah that he claimed to be, that God had promised. But he says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, well, then Jesus was a liar. 
Maybe a lunatic, but that's not really a better option. He's just another failed Messiah in a long line of failed Messiahs who overpromised and underdelivered. He was unable to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures that he himself claimed pointed to him that he would fulfill. And if Jesus is a lie, then our preaching is in vain. It is void of any power because the gospel is a lie. It ceases to be good news. And, and the worst part, I bought into this lie big time. Here's how big I bought into the lie. I left a 17-year career at Motorola to preach a lie. I uh, spent a lot of time and money in seminary learning more about the lie. And uh, I invested quite a few hours this week studying the lie and preparing to preach to you a lie. I mean, at this point, I'm nothing more than a used car salesman. I'm a timeshare salesman. I'm a snake oil salesman. Everything that I, remember Easter? Easter was awesome last week, wasn't it? It was so good. Lie. All lies. It's kind of like that Parks and Rec episode, remember, where the, they bring the guy up from South America, and he's like, that prison. You know, that prison. It's like, it's like lie, lie, lie. What, 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 what I told you the gospel is, the display of God's love, lie. What the gospel does, the transforming effect of God's love, lie. All of it. And before you start feeling too sorry for me for all of my wasted time and my gullibility, I need you to know that your faith's in vain too. It is void of any value because you bought what I was selling you. Guys, I'm not that good. We all got duped. I should probably apologize, shouldn't I? Man, that's just the second. We got three more and they only get worse. Third ramification, the next domino falls that without the resurrection, we are still in sin. We're still in sin. He says in verse 16 and 17, he says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He's like, I gotta make sure you really get that first one. Remember that first domino you knocked over? And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. We've, we've not been liberated from our sin. We've not been freed from it. Instead, we remain slave to sin. We remain chained to sin under its power because here's the thing. Only Messiah can forgive sin and right wrong. Only Messiah can free the world from sin and restore what is broken. And he can only do this by defeating death, the power of sin, the penalty for sin. And so if Jesus died and he remains dead, his death on the cross meant nothing more than the crucifixion of the two thieves crucified on either side of him, right? The cross meant absolutely nothing. There is nothing good or holy about Good Friday. We're still in our sin. But without the resurrection, the fourth ramification, the next domino to follow is that death is the end. He says in verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. Because death hasn't been defeated, there is no fulfilled promise of eternal life. John 3, 16, lie. Right? Whoever believes in a failed Messiah, guess what? They're going to perish. And those who have died, those who have fallen asleep that have gone before us, they're not waking up. And right about now, you might be thinking, but what about heaven? What about it? Well, can't we still go to heaven when we die? No, 
We can't. Because how is Jesus going to go to prepare this temporary resting place that he speaks of where we sleep following our death, awaiting our own resurrection if he's dead? Dead people don't build a lot of, a lot of hotels. If he's dead, Paul says, none of this is an option on the table anymore. Because without the resurrection, it is game over. There is no heaven. There is no waking up. Death is the end. After your last breath, it's over. And that leads to the fifth and final ramification, the final domino to fall, which is that without the resurrection, we are without hope. We're without hope. He says in verse 19, he says, if in Christ we have hope, if in a dead, failed Messiah, we have hope in this life only, because there's nothing after this, we are of all people most to be pitied. Peterson writes in the message, he says, we're a pretty sorry lot, aren't we? We're deserving of a good old-fashioned, oh, bless your hearts by the rest of the world. And I do mean the passive-aggressive, southern, shameful kind of bless your heart. See, without the hope, of the resurrection, we are without hope for today because Jesus is no longer our savior. He's just another failed Messiah. Jesus is no longer our Lord seated at the right hand of the Father because he's dead. He's no longer our king currently reigning over God's kingdom because he's dead. He's no longer our high priest interceding on our behalf because guess what? He's what? He's dead. And at that point, like, why does this life even matter? It's all for naught. There's nothing more to come. But we're not just without hope for today, we're without hope for tomorrow. We're without hope for tomorrow because we're without hope of Christ ever returning if he's still dead, of restoring creation, of things ever getting better, of the grass ever being greener on the other side. Our world remains forever broken and fractured, continually unraveling out of control. And so you might be thinking, what is the point of all of this? Why are we here? Why bother? It, it all seems like a waste then. That's exactly the point Paul makes later on. Jump down with me to verse 29. He, he kind of says three things. He's like, what is the point of baptism then? He says, what is the point of, of being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Can we stop for a second? What is he talking about? We don't preach a lot about being baptized on behalf of the dead, do we? No. To be honest, sometimes we don't know what Paul's saying. Peter said that himself. Sometimes he's a little confusing. We, we don't know here, is this a legitimate practice or not? Is he condemning or condoning? And you know, there are upwards of 200 different theories as to what he might possibly be talking about here. Here's the good news. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the point isn't how they were baptized or why they were baptized. The point Paul's making here is why they even bothered with baptism in the first place if the dead are not raised. He's like, the whole thing's foolish. The whole thing, it, it makes no sense. It fails to serve as a sign and a seal as Tim taught last week before Ethan's baptism. If it is a profession of faith in a dead, failed Messiah. 
it ceases to be symbolic of his resurrection if he was never resurrected. In that case, baptism, we just put you into the tub and we leave you there. That's what it's symbolic of. Anybody want to get baptized next week? It fails to be hope of our own future resurrection. What is the point of baptism? Second, what's the point of suffering for the gospel? He's like, if death is the end, why do we bother endangering ourselves every hour? Why are we willingly facing death and putting ourselves in harm's way every day? And Paul, Paul never once fought for his own rights as a Roman citizen, did he? He was not fighting for his own good. No, he constantly laid down his rights, facing suffering at every turn, all for the good of others. Fighting not not literal beasts in Ephesus where he was when he wrote this letter, but those who wish to silence him. He'll say in his second letter to Corinth that he was imprisoned and beaten near death and stoned, that he was shipwrecked, sleep-deprived, and starved, also that others could hear the good news of the gospel of God's love for them, of what Jesus did for them. And he's like, what's the point of all of that if I'm simply preaching a lie and if my next breath might be my last? And then he says, what's the point of faithfulness to the way of Jesus? If he's not the way to restoration of our relationship with God, if there is no hope in his return and the renewal of creation, what is the point of all of this? Maybe the pagans were right. Hashtag YOLO. Maybe we do only live once. Life's temporary. The world is evil, and God, if he even exists, he clearly doesn't care. So why should we? Let's eat. Let's drink. Let's drink some more. Because tomorrow we're going to die. Party's over. And right about here, I think what Paul does right here is he just erupts. I'm a little tired today. I don't have it in me to erupt. So can you imagine the eruption? He's like, stop! You've been deceived. You've been misled. You've been misled by these people claiming that there is no resurrection. He's like, snap out of it, guys. Stop drinking that really bad tainted Kool-Aid. He's like, wake up from your drunken stupor and come to your senses and remember what I taught you not three years ago. Trust in the gospel. Trust that you're not gonna be left behind. Because there's some in your church that have no knowledge of God. They're ignorant uh, of who God is. They're ignorant of what God has done. And most of all, they're ignorant of what God is gonna do this is where I'm like, I think he's a little heated right now because he says, I, I say this to your shame. You should, be, you should be embarrassed for having bought into this. Doesn't it make sense? And if we jump back up to verse 20, I think I, I love verse 20. You guys know I love this word. What is, what's the first word there in verse 20? Say it out loud. But. but. You know why I love that word? Because it's a word that undoes what came before it. And what he says here in verse 20 is that, but in fact, not my personal opinion, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen. The first fruits for those who have fallen asleep. And what he does is these these dominoes that fell 
Paul's gonna start to stand him back up. He's gonna rebuild that domino train, beginning with Christ's own resurrection. Verifiable, indisputable, historical fact. The disciples saw him. All the apostles saw him. Over 500 people saw him. And while they have since fallen asleep with people he wrote this letter to, he's like, go ask them. They'll tell you all about it. Jesus is no longer dead. He was, but he is no more. Now he is alive. And then he goes on to raise up the other dominoes, and he gives us three implications of Christ's resurrection. And the first is this, is that Christ's resurrection, it defeated death. He has been raised from the dead. Amen? Amen. Fact. Death was not the end for Jesus. It was a necessary part in fulfilling his mission as the Messiah, but it was not the end. He is not a liar. He is not a lunatic. He is the Lord who was raised up on the third day, just as he said. When he said he would raise up the temple, he said he was referring to himself. And that means that the gospel he proclaimed, it's not a lie. Another domino back up. The kingdom of God that he claimed to usher in has indeed begun to arrive. This was the start of something new, the restoring what had been unraveled, a renewing of the undoing from Genesis 3. And he, they, all the dominoes start popping back up. We, we're no longer without hope. Messiah is alive. Death is no longer the end. Messiah is alive. And those in Christ are free from sin. Messiah is alive. And the best part of it all, all that time and money I invested in seminary in this sermon was not wasted. We didn't get duped. I'm not a timeshare salesman. There's an amen. Christ Resurrection defeated death. Second implication, Christ's resurrection as the first fruits guarantees our own resurrection. That is a stamp of guarantee on that. First fruits, uh, it's a farming term. It, um, it's referring to the first sampling of the harvest that indicates the, the, the nature and the quality of the remaining harvest. Um, back in the day when we would uh, start picking corn, uh, we, we'd pick for a little bit and then we'd Test it to see moisture content, if it was ready to be harvested. And if not, we waited. And if it was, we would go knowing that that was an indicator of what was to come. And we see this in Leviticus 23. The people, they were to give this first fruits of the harvest to God. Not their leftovers, but the first fruits went to God, trusting that then God would provide the rest, provide all that they needed. And this served as a, as a pledge, as a, as a guarantee that there was more to come. And as the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep, the first of those who had risen from the dead, Christ's resurrection guarantees our own future resurrection. It is a pledge to us that there is more to come. He says in verse 21 and 22, he says, For as by man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, whereas Adam's rebellion ushered in the present evil age of sin and death, unraveling all of creation, infecting all of humanity, and leading to our own death in Adam, Christ's resurrection ushered in the future age to come introducing God's kingdom, the beginning of the restoration of creation and leading to our own resurrection, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. 
Good things come to those who wait. And what we see here is we live in what we call the already, not yet. Uh, we live in this tension of the, the overlap of the ages. The age of sin and death is very much still here, and yet the future age to come has begun to arrive. And we live in that tension. Suffering death in Adam, yet made alive in Christ. Experiencing the brokenness of creation, yet certain of the restoration of creation. Certain of our own resurrection upon Christ's return when he will wake us from our sleep after our own death. And that's because the third implication here is that Christ's resurrection, it initiated the renewal of all of creation. Right? The resurrection was the turning point in God's story of redemption. Death having experienced its first defeat and giving birth to renewed life, providing hope that things aren't going to remain the way they are. The brokenness will not continue forever. Because we get to see how the story ends here. We get glimpses of this throughout Scripture. But we get a glimpse of the telos of the story of what, what Jesus is doing, even if we don't see it. Look at verse 24 to 26. It says, then comes the end. When Christ returned, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to destroy is death. Paul here, he is pointing to Jesus as the true and better king spoken of by King David in Psalm 110. A king who's not passively sitting down, but, but actively reigning. Not in some future millennium, but now. And, and while that future victory has already been secured, that future kingdom has already come, uh, can we be honest, we'd like to see it pick up the pace just a little bit? Come, Lord Jesus, pretty please. But make no mistake, it will happen. It is certain. And we live in light of that certainty, don't we? We live with the hope of that certainty, that, that everything that stands in opposition to God will be defeated. Every spiritual power in opposition to God will be defeated, including death. And when Christ returns, the fullness of God's kingdom that has begun to break through will come to fruition, all of creation restored. Jesus having made all things new, John writes in Revelation. He points to Jesus as the true and better king. He also then points to Jesus as the true and better Adam, spoken of by David in Psalm 8 that he quotes here in verse 27, where he says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Side note, Paul, please don't ever say it is plain because it's not. To you it is. Here, here's basically what's going on here. Um, it's easy to misunderstand what he's saying here. Uh, so Jesus is not off on some rogue mission. He, he's not a, a rogue agent from the Trinity. He's not attempting to usurp the role of the Father. There, there's no, a battle hasn't broken out within the Trinitarian Godhead. No, instead, he, he's working in perfect unity with the Father. 
as he's always done. Right? The, the working of the Father and of the Son is indivisible, Augustine writes. The Father and Son, each ontologically equal to one another in their divine being, each fully and truly God. Or as the Athanasian Creed writes, the dignity of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. They are not less God than the Father. And when all things are subjected to him, when um, we, we got all the toys out and we scattered them all over the floor and we left Legos all over the face of this earth for people to step on in the middle of the night, ways for people to stub toes, when, when Jesus, having put everything back the way we found it in the very good beginning, back where it belongs, everything and everyone finally under God's rule, as Peterson writes in the message, the Father having highly exalted his Son and bestowing on him the name above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ as Lord, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the Father. Having fulfilled the will of the Father, fulfilled the mission on which he was sent, having done all of this, it says, to the glory of God the Father in Philippians 2. As the Father exalts the Son, the Son glorifies the Father. We, we've never seen or experienced such perfect love amongst three as we see in the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And I think that's why passages like this are hard to understand. Why would anybody do this? They did it together. This was all so that God may be all in all and among all. The creator as Lord over all of his creation, among his creation. For behold, John says, the dwelling place of God is here with man. That's how the story ends. Showing that God's rule is absolutely comprehensive. A perfect ending, Peterson writes. God here dwelling among us, not in some distant spiritual realm referred to by us as heaven, but here in a very physical realm referred to by Scripture as a new heaven and a new earth. That's the reality of the resurrection. Every domino knocked over has been stood back up. Christ is alive. He is the Messiah. His promises are true, and he will fulfill every one of them. The reality of the resurrection of of Christ's resurrection, of creation's resurrection, and our own resurrection. And that should change the way we live, shouldn't it? Living in hope of what is to come. Each week at this time, we then, we've, we've received what God's word has said. Now we spend time reflecting on God's word. And I want us to spend a bit of time reflecting on the reality of the resurrection, of what this, what this means. And so I'm going to read this middle passage in three parts. And after each part, I'm just going to give you time to sit quietly and reflect and to allow the Spirit to continue stirring. And so as we do each week, I want to invite you to, let's begin by positioning our bodies, sitting, sitting straight up, feet on the floor, hands out, palms up, ready to receive from God. Positioning our hearts, take a deep breath in, let it out. Praying that simple breath prayer of Samuel, here I am, Lord. I'm ready to listen.
And first, I want you to reflect on the reality of Christ's resurrection. The fact of his resurrection, having defeated death, that he is the Messiah, that the gospel is true. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Second, reflect on the reality of our own future bodily resurrection. A body free of disease, from the ravaging effects of things like cancer and lupus, no more arthritis or Alzheimer's, they are all undone. It says, for as man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Now reflect on the reality of the resurrection story, the certainty of how this story ends and the living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Father, thank you for not leaving us to guess how the story ends. And while you've not given us every every detail, you've not given us a timeline, you've not even given us the warning signs, but God, you've told us how it ends, and our hope is in that. Our hope is in what you have promised to do. Our hope is founded on Jesus 
Father, we come before you and we acknowledge that sometimes the suffering and the brokenness of this world is just too much. It's more than we can handle. We're not sure if we can go uh, another day. And it's on those days, God, that we need this reminder that there is more to come. That the undoing will be redone. The, the unraveling will be put back. That creation will be restored. What is wrong will be made right. And that includes our own bodies. The way that we have suffered and continue to suffer, the way loved ones suffer. God, this was not the way it was to be. We acknowledge that before you. And we cry out to you, come, Lord Jesus. We cry, come, because we want this great restoration project to complete. We want the brokenness to end. And while we cry, we also wait, and we wait with patience, and we wait with hope. Not by our own strength, but the power of your spirit within us, strengthening and sustaining us as we wait for Christ's return. This is our hope. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.